Walk on over to Walter's Winter Wonderland and make your enchant evening truly enchanting. Since 2019, Walter's has transitioned itself from a great neighborhood gathering place to a holiday explosion with thousands of lights, holiday decorations, and themed cocktails for everyone to enjoy. For larger groups, email jeremy at waltersdc.com. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, I think you're, you're seeing, you know, everyone's needs are the same. Everyone's looking for starting pitching in the, in the whole sport. So, uh, you know, we're no different. Uh, you can never have enough of it. And, you know, we're, we're in search of it. We do have some young players that are coming um, that I think could supply some, some power as well. This winter, we're going to look, look elsewhere, too, to see if we can maybe fill some gaps that we need to fill. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. It is the second installment of the podcast for the Nationals 2023-2024 offseason. But this is the first of two installments of the podcast for this week. Yes, the first ever multi-episode offseason week of the Nats Chat podcast, as this is Winter Meetings Week, MLB's 2023 winter meetings taking place Sunday through Wednesday, December 3rd through the 6th in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, and I am joined by MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel in Nashville. We are taping this show in the late night hours of Monday night, headed into Tuesday morning. And Monday ended up being a day on which both Nats manager Davey Martinez and Nats president of Baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo spoke with reporters at length in Nashville. Multiple noteworthy items from each guy. We'll get to them coming up shortly. But Mark, how is the Music City? Will you be wearing a cowboy hat at any point this week? Perhaps cowboy boots. Are you truly welcoming with open arms the flavor of Nashville? Well, if I was truly in Nashville, Al, maybe I would embrace that. But the Opryland for those who've never been here before, is essentially Disneyland, its own entity that is humongous. And so there's so much walking. I wish I had one of those watches that tracks your your steps. There's so much walking to get from one place to another at this facility that I don't think cowboy boots would be the way to go. This is a sneakers kind of hotel and resort. You put a lot of miles on your feet. So it's about comfort, not about the style here at the Opryland. As strange as that may be to sound, it really is here about keeping your feet intact all week. Well, if uh, Mark wants to sing some Garth Brooks, perhaps we'll have that later in the show. But until then, we have Nats baseball 
to discuss. And, you know, it's a funny thing, man, because the winter meetings used to be a massive deal in MLB, right? Like the winter meetings used to be where the offseason truly got going. And I feel like that's not really the case anymore. And that's not to say that things don't happen at winter meetings. That's not to say that like the foundations for future deals are not established at winter meetings. But the winter meetings in a lot of ways has become like a job fair in MLB. It's become a gathering of people in MLB. But you don't always necessarily have a lot in the way of transactions. But then you have what's happening with the Nats. And we all know the deal. The last few off-seasons have uh, not been ultra-eventful ones in terms of Nationals transactions. There had been a thought that maybe just maybe this might be the coming out party for the Nats with their rebuild and them for the first time in a while making some noise in an off-season. The general prevailing sentiment now seems to be this probably is going to be another quiet off-season, at least relatively speaking, for the Nats. Before we get to some of the best of what Mike and Davey had to say on Monday, is that what you're feeling? that this probably is not going to be some super eventful offseason for the Nats? Right. And I sort of speculated that leading up to this week at the meetings. And since arriving here and talking to a bunch of different people that I've run into from the organization, I'm pretty much getting that same message from everyone that they understand that, look, there are people who work for the Nats that are getting itchy to make some moves to get this thing really going. They've been through three years of losing and starting the rebuild process. They can see the light at the end of the tunnel and they want to get going. They want to take this to another level and feel like, hey, let's go spend some money. Let's, you know, try to start building a team that we think can win in in part because from 71 wins, it's only 13 more to get to 84, which would have gotten them in the playoffs this year. So I think there is some sentiment about that. But ultimately, everybody who says that follows it up with the caveat of, We understand why that's probably not going to be the case, why it's really going to be about next year in all likelihood. As we have suspected all along, they have made progress, yes, but there are a bunch of young prospects who we expect to make their major league debut sometime in 2024. And the feeling is that there's still one more intermediate step for the organization to take before it starts really seriously thinking of itself as a contender. And on a practical level, You say, yeah, you can go spend money on a free agent now. There's no reason you can't go big and sign a guy to a big contract. But a year from now, they're going to have a much clearer idea of what they truly do have and what they don't have. And I think that's the mindset that they're trying to take here is, yeah, we could spend money now. But if we wait a year, we're going to have a much clearer idea of what specifically we should target to maybe get us over that hump. And maybe then going into 2025, they legitimately feel like they're ready to contend again. Yeah, I mean, this coming Nat season has the chance to be by far the most exciting and noteworthy Nat season since 2019. When you think about what could be happening this coming season, right? The major league debuts of Dylan Cruz and James Wood and Brady House and the return of Cade Cavalli and hopefully the continued growth of, you know, CJ Abrams and Kbert Ruiz and Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore. Like this has the chance to be a really exciting 2024 season for the Nats. And so, yeah, we got to see more. We got to see who's what and what is who and kind of where all of this is at. I said this late last season. I believe this even more now. I think this coming season is so big in this rebuild. I think this coming season is going to tell us truly whether the rebuild is working or not. I think everyone feels better about the rebuild now as compared to a year ago. But I think there still are a lot of questions and there still is a lot to be determined. And, you know, what we had 
in the days and weeks exiting the Nats season, going into this offseason, all of the changes with the front office and Davey Martinez's coaching staff, that's another sort of mixed messaging on how things are going. Like we talked about on the last installment of the podcast, like if the rebuild is going so well, how come you just changed a bunch of things? How come you just got rid of a bunch of people? Like, what does that say? So I think there's a lot to be determined. But yeah, I think a year from now, if this coming season is what we want it to be, you certainly could see some eventful happenings for the Nats in the offseason. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some uh, chum in the water when it comes to the Nats this offseason. We are hearing some names being tied to the Nats. How much of this is legit, who knows? But Jamer Candelario continues to come up. Reese Hoskins has come up. Jorge Soler has come up. Just to kind of narrow it down to those three guys, I don't know if you're hearing about anybody else, but how viable, how realistic do you think it is that the Nats sign one of those guys this offseason? I think you have to look at those cases individually. I think for the most part, First, let, let's identify what the holes are they have to fill. And it's basically the exact same holes they had a year ago. It's first base, third base, left field, and maybe a starting pitcher to, to fill out the back of the rotation. Now, there are some moving parts there. You put Joey Manessis at first base, and there was some indication today from Davey Martinez that that might be a move they make, at least on a 50-50 basis, to have Joey play first base. So you can maybe look at more of a DH there. We are pretty good about masking. His, you know, he had a knee issue, um, and uh, so we wanted to keep him healthy. You know, the biggest thing was to keep him on the field, keep, you know, keep him hitting. But that's pretty much what they need. Now, they know what's in the pipeline and what's coming. So are you going to sign an outfielder to a long-term deal right now? No, I don't think you're going to do that because you know that James Wood and Dylan Cruz, in theory, are going to be here soon. Third base, you could kind of go either way. You don't really know when Brady House is going to be ready and how good he's going to be. So maybe there's some leeway there. First base, there is more of an avenue to say there isn't like that obvious candidate who's going to burst from within the farm system and take over that position. So that might be one that you go a little more long-term with. But I specifically asked Mike Rizzo about Jamer Candelario. I, I'm not supposed to name, you know, specific free agents. So he's a, you know, he's a great guy. We liked him. He was great for us last year. And, you know, knowing that uh, if you want to go after that type of player, you're going to have to go multiple, multiple years. So I think we're prepared. We're prepared to do that also in the right situation. You know, he, he gave us the GM or going to do in those situations. Well, I can't really comment on individual players and all that, but we know he loved it here. We loved him. He's going to require a larger multi-year kind of contract. And if the price is right, we'd be comfortable making that kind of move. So I think of all of those guys, he's the one that makes the most sense if the price is right. You know, they got him for $5 million last year and then got great production for four months and flipped him for a pitching prospect in DJ Hers. It really, that one worked out as well as you could have asked for. Now he's going to get paid because of that because he had a really good season. He's probably going to get at least a three-year deal, I think, maybe even four, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like $15 million a year, maybe even more than that. If the price is right, the terms are right, say a three-year deal for like $45 million, I think it makes sense. I think they probably think it makes sense. And you put him at third base now, and if and when Brady House is ready for that job, you can always move Candelario to first base or even DH down the road. He was influential in the clubhouse. He loved it here. They loved him. I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. Now, somebody like Reese Hoskins, who's a far bigger name, but is coming off of an ACL injury and didn't play for the Phillies, what exactly is he looking for? Is he going to get a long-term deal or is he looking for that one-year bounce-back season and then parlay that into a much bigger deal a year from now? I think that depends on how the Nats would approach it. They're not going to sign Reese Hoskins for five, six years, I don't think. If there's a one-year deal 
and now you can do what you did with Candelaro and he plays well and then you flip him at the trade deadline, I think it would make some sense for them. I think Solaire is a little more of just a power bat DH. I know he can play the outfield. I definitely got the sense that they're, at least Davey Martinez, really is focused on trying to get a left-handed bat to help them in the outfield because they're so right-handed heavy at the moment. So Solaire doesn't fit that profile. So not to say it couldn't happen, but I don't think he's quite the ideal fit for them there. I think the things to look for are, for the most part, short-term deals. Maybe somebody like Candelaro who could have a place here beyond one year and left-handed power and just power in general is absolutely something they're seeking. They know they need to be better in that department. And I think you're going to see an emphasis placed on guys who can hit the ball out of the park. Well, the value in free agency is almost always in the shorter term contract, especially the prove it contract. And what the Nats had with Candelario this past season is a classic example of that. But, you know, in sort of going through those three guys, and I know that those three guys don't like to find this free agent class, but I think this really is one of the major changes in MLB over the last, say, 10 years. And I think it's part of why something like the winter meetings isn't what it used to be. The truth is, if you're a really good player, you usually don't make it to free agency anymore. Now, of course, there are really good players who do make it to free agency. Shohei Otani this year would be one. But like by and large now, the really good players get locked up via contract extensions. And so they don't make it to free agency. And so what these free agent classes more and more are becoming are classes of like second class baseball citizens or guys who are good, but who have flaws. Like you could actually argue in MLB and in other leagues Making it to free agency is kind of a red flag in and of itself because it says that your previous team didn't think enough of you to make certain that you didn't get to free agency, that the team signed you. Now, again, there are exceptions. You know, you can't just put a blanket rule on everything. But yeah, I mean, like going through those guys, there are things to be concerned about with each guy. You know, each guy, by the way, is already at or going into his 30s. So, you know, you wonder about the age thing. I mean, Candelario was great this past season. He was not so good the previous season. So if you're going to give him a three-year, $45 million contract, how certain are you that the Candelario you're getting is 2023 Jamer Candelario as opposed to 2022 Jamer Candelario? So the value in free agency, it just, there have been so many bad deals over the years. And I think more and more, there has been this like awakening to what it is. So I think unquestionably, especially a team like the Nats, right? The foundation is the draft and player development. It's your prospects. And then you kind of complement things here and there with some strategically signed free agents. And that sounds like what the Nats are doing. They're certainly not trying to rebuild this thing via free agency or anything like that. And I especially think that with where the Nats are right now, there really isn't that much of a need to do anything of great consequence in free agency this offseason. If something really strikes them as fitting what they're doing, okay, fine. But if the Nats don't do anything really meaningful this offseason in terms of a free agent signing, I think that's okay too. Sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. I know because I, I hear it from fans anytime I report anything that makes it sound like they're not going to go spend a lot of money this winter. I know how frustrating it is for all of you out there listening who you know you say, wait a minute, why is this team unwilling to spend? We've been through four straight losing years now. When is it going to be time to do this? Why not do it now? Why are you going into this on the cheap as they would describe it? Well, I get it. I get what you're saying. But I think you have to remind yourself that once they made that decision in 2021 and then really in 2022 when they traded Juan Soto, that they were going to do this rebuild to the extent that they were, you have to acknowledge 
that that delays the process for now becoming a player in free agency again. Yeah, you can do it, but is it always the wisest way to do that? I mean, look, this team knows what it's like to be burned by long-term free agent contracts, and you can't help but wonder if they're a little gun-shy about things, especially when it comes to pitchers and those kind of deals. So as hard as it is, as antsy as everyone is, I think there's absolutely value in what you just said that you got to wait one more year for this. You got to see where this thing is a year from now, and then you're going to have a much better idea of how to approach it. And I, I'm going to take Mark Lerner at his word here that when the time is right, and, and I think Mike Rizzo as well, because I think Rizzo is on board with this idea right now, that when they think the team is ready, they will spend and have a payroll that looks more like what we used to see from them from 2012 to 2019. But that right now, spending money just for the sake of it doesn't necessarily improve the team in the way that you want it to. I think it needs to be a more calculated move for something you know is going to get you over that hump and make you a playoff team or ultimately go far in the playoffs. One other point about what you were saying about guys reaching free agency now and it doesn't work the same way it used to. I think a big part of this is almost all free agents are in their 30s, unless you're a Bryce Harper, Juan Soto who debuted at 19 or 20. Well, 10 years ago, signing a guy in his 30s to a long-term deal wasn't seen as that dangerous. Guys were sustaining success well into their 30s. You're not seeing that as much anymore. And so I think GMs and owners are much more scared off by signing guys already in their 30s for more than a couple of years. Hitters aren't what they were at 35 that they were a decade ago. We can talk about the reasons for why that is, but I think that is a fact around the sport right now. There is a lot more fear and I think GMs and owners and front offices have gotten a lot smarter about recognizing how quick the drop-off can be as players age nowadays. Yeah, PED testing has restored a more proper aging curve. There's no doubt about that. And I think there also now is a smartening up to what the aging curve actually is. For years, there was kind of this thought of a player's prime is like 28 to 32. That's not really true. Your prime is more like 25 to 28, somewhere in there. And so this thing of, well, he's going into his 30s, that's okay. Well, it can be. I mean, it's not like, you know, you, you fall off a cliff at 30, but 30 is when, okay, you've peaked athletically. And the only thing that's going to happen is you either sustain or you fall off. When you're in your early to mid 20s, you can still be on the ascend. You can still be on the rise. And that's certainly something that's very notable. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right? And uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere, and Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202-486-3535 or email Mason at mason at zenithlegal.com. 
That's 202-486-3535 or via email at mason at zenithlegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, The Nats will be contenders very soon, and you can be a contender even sooner. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I don't want to get into the Strasburg situation. Uh, you know, is it uh, is it unfortunate that he's he's taken up a roster spot? Yeah, it's it's, it's fortunate. But those these things are are uh, uh, above your and my pay grade. So we're we're gonna we're gonna let we're gonna let Players Association and, and Major League Baseball sort this thing out. And the bottom line is, as Steven Strasburg is one of ours. He's a pillar of the organization. He's, his name's going to be in the Ring of Honor someday. And uh, and and I love the guy. So that's where I leave it. All right. So in terms of the best of what Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez had to say to Mark and uh, other reporters on Monday, you know, a lot of ways we could go with this. I guess let's deal with the uh, negative item right away and get that out of the way. Mike Rizzo was asked about the Steven Strasburg situation. Steven Strasburg is still occupying a spot on the Nats 40-man roster. This situation still has not come to a resolution This is a situation that needs to come to a resolution. It still has not. And Mike actually refused to get into the Strasburg situation with you guys, other than to compliment uh, Strasburg. And to say that this situation comes down to the MLB Players Association and to Major League Baseball, that those two entities need to sort this thing out. I thought that was interesting because I think most people would say, well, don't the Nationals and Steven Strasburg's camp need to sort this out? What did Mike mean by bringing up the MOBPA and MOB is needing to sort this thing out? Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. I had heard rumblings along those lines, but that's the first time I've really heard it kind of on the record as, as bluntly as that. And I think it's you know, in part, Rizzo trying to say, hey, this isn't our fault. This isn't just about the Nationals being unwilling to do something that Steven Strasburg and Scott Boris want, that there are larger forces at play here. You know, reading between the lines, and, and it's hard because so few people are really discussing this on or off the record of what the situation is. I do wonder if, you know, go back to August and it got out that Strasburg had conceded he was going to retire and they made the plans for the press conference and you know, my feeling all along was, well, that must mean that they have worked out some kind of financial arrangement that is satisfactory to both sides. And then something happened after that for them to say, no, nah, actually, we're not ready to, to do this and we can't have the press conference and he can't officially retire. And I wonder if whatever it was that they think they had worked out, 
that the league and or the union said, hang on, I don't think that's allowed or we're not happy with that, that these kind of contract things are very complicated. And if you go back and really read the CBA, there's a lot of language in there that's confusing about how to handle retirement situations and what's responsible and who's responsible for it and what you can do to change a contract's terms at that point when somebody suffers a, a debilitating injury. I do think that there's maybe some evidence here that it's not so much about the Nationals and Strasburg, but that it is actually on a higher level about precedent setting and the league and the union stepping in and being like, okay, hang on, we need to figure this out ourselves to make this work out in a way that doesn't just work for Strasburg and the Nats, but will work for future cases if this ever arises again. Now, the problem of all that is Steven Strasburg's still on the 40-man roster, and he's using up a spot that they really should not be wasting on a guy who everybody knows is never going to pitch again. And barring some kind of resolution here, he's going to have to stay on the 40-man roster for the rest of the winter and all the way through spring training, at which point you finally have an injured list going into next season. And Rizzo admitted that that's frustrating, that it's not ideal to be that way, but he's basically saying like, I can't do anything about that right now. This is the situation until we hear otherwise, that's what's going to have to be. It really is bad. And, you know, if the Nats were a contending team, it would be even worse. You're, you're almost lucky that the Nats are in the predicament that they're in because at least you can sort of stomach this now. But this is not healthy. This is not good. This thing is lingering way too long. And, you know, I hear what you're saying about precedent setting and all that. But it's like, ultimately, if the team and the player arrive at an arrangement, they should be able to execute that arrangement. We don't know the particulars. So we don't know who's asking for what and who's pushing back on what. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we're sort of like wrestling with shadows with this. Like, you know, we don't know that there's so little that has been put out there about this. But man, this is not what anyone ever wanted with this. And, you know, if you would have said six months ago that we'd still be talking about this now as we are into December at the winter meetings, that's not good, man. That is not good at all. So all you can do is hope like heck that at least maybe before the start of the regular season, this thing finally gets put to rest. But still, you, you will have gone through the entire offseason at that point with this guy eating up a spot on the 40 man. Right. And I honestly believe that when things were falling apart there in August into September, that as ugly as that looked, that eventually they would all realize, okay, they can't let this drag on into the offseason because it would start having ramifications for them and what they can do. And so the fact that here in December, it is still an issue. And unless something's going on that we aren't aware of behind the scenes, it's going to bring a resolution to this soon. My hunch is this will go all the way through the offseason. And that is a problem. And you're right that they're at least in a position where the 40-man roster spots aren't quite as precious to them. But I'll give you a little example here. And it doesn't sound like much. I thought of this the other day. They cleared two spots to try to make room for potential moves of Rule 5 pick or if they do sign a free agent here at the meetings. And they got Joe LaSorsa through waivers. They outrighted him AAA, so he's off the 40-man. They tried to do the same with Rodri Munoz, a right-hander they picked up during the season from the Braves. He never made the big leagues, but he was at AAA. But he's a guy that could potentially be a big league pitcher for them, maybe even a starter down the road. Well, they put him on waivers, but the Pirates claimed him. And so he's now their property. Now, if Steven Strasburg isn't here, that's the 40-man spot that you could have cleared and you could have protected Rodri Munoz. Now, I have no idea if this guy's ever going to amount to anything, but what if he does? What if he makes it with the Pirates and ends up having some kind of career for them 
and the Nats were helpless to do anything about it because they had to remove somebody from their 40-man roster while keeping Steven Strasburg. So, I mean, you can see a scenario where eventually this does come back to bite them because somebody is the victim and loses their roster spot that they actually wanted to keep. In terms of actual news that was revealed via these press sessions for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez on Monday, maybe the newsiest item was what we learned about Joey Manessis. It turns out that he this past season was dealing with a nagging knee issue and that that perhaps helps to explain why we saw so much of Joey at designated hitter as opposed to seeing more of him at first base. Now, uh, you know, him not being Keith Hernandez as a defensive first baseman probably had something to do with that as well. But it was interesting. I mean, Davey Martinez seemed pretty adamant that he wants to see more of Joey Manessis at first base. And Davey brought up that knee thing, which, uh, as far as I know, we had not known of prior to this press session on Monday. You know, knowing Davey and how he can be, like, he'll say stuff it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the case. It might just be Davey being positive. Oh, we want to see more Joey at first base. Yeah, sure you do. And then, you know, this coming season, he plays like 10 games at first base. So like, you know, you have to be open to that possibility. But the neat thing was interesting. That was newsy. That was something that uh, Davey put out there. So we wanted to keep him healthy. You know, the biggest thing was to keep him on the field, keep, you know, keep him hitting. What'd you make of that? Yeah. And Davey even prefaced by saying, you know, we kind of did a good job of hiding this from you guys, that this was something going on all year. My understanding from asking around later on is that he actually hurt himself over the last winter playing in winter ball in Mexico. And then it was still lingering for him into the season. Now, it never prevented him from playing. Uh, he played in a, a ton of games, 154 games for them and, you know, took us a few days off. But I, I did get the sense that they were saying at least some of the reason why he didn't play first base more than he did was that they were trying to protect his knee and understanding that they needed him in the lineup as much as possible and putting him in the field might hurt him to some extent. Now, they also had Dominic Smith, who they had acquired and who was brought in primarily because of his defensive ability. And so I think that's a big part of it. But here's the point that I think they look at. And I get it's a small sample. It's only 19 games. So maybe it doesn't actually mean anything. But Joey Manessas as a DH this season hit 265, 313 on base, 361 slugging for a 674 OPS. Not good. Certainly not what you're expecting from somebody who is an offensive player. In his 19 games as a first baseman, though, he hit 333 with a 372 on base, a 630 slugging, and a 1002 OPS. Now, Joey himself said on more than one occasion that the DH role was unfamiliar and uncomfortable to him and that he preferred to play in the field because it, he thought it kept him more engaged and ultimately could make him a better offensive player. I don't know if that's true or not, but you could see how he might believe that and why the Nats might be thinking that as well. And that while this is still a diamond in the rough and, and a you know ultimate out of nowhere guy that they found themselves, he could be more than he was this past season. And if he is healthy and if he has a chance to play at least some first base and that makes him a better hitter and he starts hitting for a little more power, then maybe there's something to this and he might actually be even more of a hitter than we've seen from him. Yeah, it's interesting what we now have in MLB with first base slash DH because it used to be you just want a 40 home run guy at first base and you set it and forget it. And now there's kind of this school of thought of 
you want to be able to sort of rotate guys at DH and to a lesser extent at first base. So if you have a Pete Alonso, great, ride him. But if you don't, it's not the worst thing in the world if you don't have an obvious everyday first baseman, just like it's uh, not so bad if you don't have an obvious everyday designated hitter, because you can rotate guys there. You can make usage of positional flexibility. I mean, that's one of the appealing things about Jamer Candelario. If the Nats bring him back, Brady House, once he's ready, becomes your third baseman. Candelario can play some first base, can play designated hitter, et cetera. So you don't want to be so locked into anyone at any one position. But it was interesting to hear Davey bring up the knee thing and say that, uh, hey, we do want to see more of uh, Joey Manessis at first base. The other kind of newsy thing, and this came late in Davey's session with you guys, was uh, <laughs> Davey not at all guaranteeing that Luis Garcia will be the Nats starting second baseman for this coming season. My message to him was, there's no guarantee, you know, in spring training, you got to come and fight for a job. Now, that's not a shock, right? I mean, the Nats, remember, optioned Luis Garcia to AAA Rochester this past August 2nd. If you remember the particulars of Garcia's 2023 season, he had a horrendous July, got optioned to Rochester on August 2nd. The Nats, on September 8th, announced that they had recalled Garcia from Rochester. And we also at one point had Mike Rizzo going on the sports junkies and saying essentially, hey, this was about Luis Garcia's professionalism, that uh, we wanted him to go down there, learn a routine, learn how to prepare. Also said that he had wanted Garcia to lose some weight, which Garcia did actually end up doing. We went into last season talking about Luis Garcia, C.J. Abrams, K. Bert Ruiz, Josiah Gray, Mackenzie Gore, perhaps Victor Robles, but like those guys mattering more than anyone else. You could argue that out of all of those guys, the guy who had the worst season was Luis Garcia. And so where are you with him? He was never a highly regarded prospect in terms of like overall prospect rankings within the Nats. He had been viewed pretty favorably. But yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's not shocking that he's not like guaranteed the starting second base job. But for Davey to put it like that, that certainly stood out. Yeah. And Davey also made the point about that they challenged him to lose some weight. He talked about how great he has looked. He's playing winter ball and how he's done and wanting him to work on his agility be able to be more effective in the field and be able to move around. I mean, I think you saw at times last season that while he was improved as far as his throws and his turning of double plays went, his range at second base was still pretty weak. There were a good number of ground balls off the bat that you would think a second baseman should make and he couldn't even get to the play. So I think they're absolutely challenging him now. Is this all just to motivate him and they know deep down he's still going to be the guy? Or do they actually think there's a chance that he's not? The only problem with it is I outlined the positions that they have to fill, that they like literally don't have anybody for right now. First base, third base, left field. Are you going to add a fourth one to that and try to get a second baseman as well for a team that we know is unlikely to spend a whole lot in free agency? So if they do anything there, I'm guessing it would be more of a, you know, a veteran on a minor league deal or somebody who could maybe play other positions as well and not go out and really get a full-time second baseman, but maybe somebody that pushed Garcia a little bit, or in case it doesn't work out with him, that you'd have as a fallback. But I, I did think it was notable that the bloom is off that rose to a, a good extent. And the moment they sent him down to AAA, I think that should have been the red flag for everyone out there that they weren't totally satisfied with him. And he's had his opportunities. He's still young. I don't think they've given up on him altogether. But this is kind of a show me year for Luis Garcia. And if he doesn't show it to them, they're not just going to say, okay, you're still our everyday second baseman. 
Yeah, he pretty clearly is in that Victor Robles category of talented, but there's a knucklehead factor and that frustrates the team. And so you wonder if that's going to ultimately be Garcia's undoing. Hopefully not. I mean, he is really young. So, you know, to me, like you do have to give him some leeway with that. Like, you know, like a lot of us, he has to mature a little bit. So, you know, that's okay. I mean, he's certainly not the first person in the history of the world about whom you can say that. But I do wonder with Luis Garcia, you know, we've talked about like with Nats outfielders, is it really the case that the Nats just have a bunch of fourth outfielders and we're just waiting for Dylan Cruz, James Wood, et cetera. Is Luis Garcia on a good team, maybe like your Danny Espinosa, a guy who can play second base and shortstop off the bench, but he's not really a starter. And you know that's to be determined, right? I think we need to see some more. And Garcia, I think defensively can be really good. The offense has been up and down. At times he's looked good, at times not so good. So you know, even if he gets his act together from a professionalism standpoint, he still has to sort of meet the standard of can he perform consistently as an everyday major leaguer? I think there's still a lot to be determined in that regard. No, 100%. I mean, we've seen the good look. He had a six hit game last season. And for a period there early in the year, it was really hitting well. Now we know he's mostly a singles hitter. They would love to see some more power from him. They'd love to see him chase less than he does. But I remember early in the year, he was playing what we felt like was very improved defense at second base. But yeah, I mean, he is not the caliber of young player that a C.J. Abrams, Caber Ruiz, or those other kids who are coming are. But let's also remember, you're not going to have a lineup of nine future superstars. You know, you're going to have role players. You're going to have guys who just are decent big leaguers, even on good teams. And I think that's where he would ultimately fall in if everything works out. Now, again, they don't have somebody knocking on the door to say, okay, there's an obvious replacement there. There are some who could, over time, take that spot. But at the moment, I mean, it's Jake Alou or Ildemaro Vargas, and I don't see those being everyday options. So I, barring an offseason acquisition of a second baseman, my hunch is that ultimately the job is still Luis Garcia's, but I think they want to put some pressure on him and make him realize, hey, you got your warning shot last August when we sent you down. You're going to get another shot here again, but you need to really show us something this time, and the leash is probably going to be pretty short. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi to tell you about Window Nation. Winter is coming. The air is getting colder. Energy prices continue to be quite high. Take advantage of the terrific offer that Window Nation is extending to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. 0% interest for five years and 50% off all styles of windows. Call 866 866- 90 Nation or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation windows are the best and Window Nation windows will upgrade the feel and look of your home all while lowering your energy costs. Window Nation is the best. Take advantage of the offer that Window Nation has right now. If only the Nats could get such an offer on free agents at the winter meetings. 0% interest for five years and 50% off all styles of windows. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. For the team that was 12 games under 500, 19 and 31 after 50 games. Here's a smash and a base hit in the right field for Parra. Rounding third is Dozier. He will score. Over to third goes Defoe on another base hit. 
And another run batted in for Gerardo Parra. He's had two at-bats. He's driven in three more runs in this game. And the Nationals now lead by the score of 8-2. to two. Parra was around quite a bit, so Parra knows these guys. You know, Ricky, Ricky's known these guys as well. Uh, the new guys, Miguel, and uh, you know, I talked to Miguel the other day. Well, since we last did an installment of the Nats Chat podcast, the Nats have officially announced their 2024 Major League coaching staff. That happened on November 10th. Among the things that we did get from Davey on Monday was him addressing this new look coaching staff. You know, one of the things we talked about on the last installment of the podcast was all of these changes with, uh, well, Mike Rizzo's front office and Davey's coaching staff. But while we're talking Davey here, how much of these changes were done because Davey wanted the changes versus the changes were forced on Davey? Do you have any better of a sense of that now? Like how much of this came from Davey versus how much of this came from people other than Davey, these changes to his coaching staff? Well, just based on the way Davey spoke about it, and this is the first time that he has spoken about these changes, it sounds like he was at least on board with them. Opportunity being where we're headed uh, to bring some fresh fresh guys in and uh, some guys of, that are very well capable of, of coaching and coach young players. Um, so uh, we you know, decided to make that change. Whether they were instigated by him or proposed to him and then he decided to go along with it, I, I can't say with 100% certainty, but I think he felt like there were some things that they wanted to do differently and that he wanted to do differently. And I, I think I mentioned this on the last episode and, and he kind of reiterated and confirmed my suspicion there that there was a real emphasis being placed on improved coaching of defense and improved coaching of base running. Two big problem areas for this team. You have Ricky Gutierrez, who was their run prevention coordinator, essentially their infield coach, certainly working with C.J. Abrams this past year. Got a lot of credit for the improvements that Abrams made and also the work that Jamer Candelario did before he was traded. And the feeling was, well, he should be the guy in charge of all this stuff. And the other two members of the staff who were working with the infielders were Gary DeSarcina, the third base coach, Tim Bogar, the bench coach. So you make Gutierrez now the third base coach, and he takes over all of that. Emphasis on defense. Gerardo Parra replacing Eric Young Jr. at first base. In Parra's case, it does sound like there was always this understanding that someday he wanted to be a big league coach, but he wasn't ready yet right after retirement, that he wanted to spend more time with his family. Well, some point here at the end of the season, I think he let it be known to Davey Martinez that he was ready for it. And so I think that precipitated that move. And a guy who, you know, we know him as the lovable clubhouse guy and the baby shark and everything that he brought in terms of personality. What Davey and Mike Rizzo also know about him from earlier in his career is that he was a really good gold glove outfielder. And they think he can make a big difference in helping what was a big problem area. Their outfield defense was a real issue. And that was Eric Young Jr.'s responsibility. There was a lot of talk about, remember, about positioning and guys playing too deep, too shallow, not getting the balls, miscommunications between multiple outfielders. I think they feel like Parr can make a real difference in that regard. So I think you saw there an understanding and a recognition that they needed to be better in some of these fundamental areas and that maybe these different coaches were better aligned with what they're trying to do. Well, the uh, changes, just to sort of reset some things, because I know people, you know, come and go and you kind of forget who's uh, where and what exactly happened. So gone bench coach Tim Bogor, gone first base coach 
Eric Young Jr. gone. Third base coach Gary DeSarcina gone. Assistant hitting coach Pat Rossler still in effect, though. Pitching coach Jim Hickey and hitting coach Darnell Coles. I know that was the one that <laughs> most people, A, thought would change and B, probably wanted to change. But uh, Darnell survived. Uh, we'll see for how much longer. Hey, Maybe there are things uh, the Nats know that we don't know, but obviously offense power in particular uh, was a big time problem for the Nats last season. But of course, that can all change this coming season with the arrivals at the major league level of James Wood and Dylan Cruz and Brady House. I know Mike Rizzo is not going to commit to anything with those guys, nor should Mike Rizzo commit to anything with those guys. Did talk a bit about, you know, not wanting to block them at the major league level. Obviously, the Nats are not going to be doing that. Well, we're not going to block guys, but, uh, you know, if we're fortunate enough to that we have this influx of guys that are knocking on the you know the big league door, then that that'll be a good day. Do you think there's any shot that any of those guys, maybe more than one of those guys, begins the season at the major league level, or do you think that that's pretty far fetched that all three guys are going to be beginning this coming season at the minor league level? I think it's pretty far fetched. They all ended the season at Double A, not like they played the full season there. They worked their way up to that point and all had various levels of success and struggles when they got there. The ultimate cynic in me, did you see the news last week about the final exhibition game they're going to play? They're calling it the uh, Futures game, Nationals Futures game. And I think it's a really good idea and fans definitely seem to be on board with it, where instead of that final exhibition at Nats Park that usually comes against like the Yankees or the Red Sox, it's going to be at the Nationals big leaguers against their prospects and a chance for fans in D.C. who can't go to spring training to see who all these kids are, not just the big names, but some other ones as well. Well, the cynic in me said, okay, that kind of confirms to me that they don't think any of these guys are going to actually make the team because they're going to be part of that futures game. Like, why would you hold a futures game if your top future players are already in the big leagues? Now, I don't think they know this for a fact yet. They don't know who's going to be on what roster, who's healthy, whatever happens, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think ultimately this goes hand in hand with what we're talking earlier about the approach to free agency. A lot of people are antsy. They want to finally see the fruits of this thing come together. And they also at the same time have to tell themselves, hang on, take a step back, let them develop at the appropriate pace. When they're ready, we'll know they're ready because their performance will dictate it. I do think at least one, maybe two of them can put on a good show in spring training, maybe start the year at AAA in in short order if they are dominating there, get the call. But I don't think they're going to feel like they need to go into the season with any of them there right off the bat. That It is a big leap. You can mock AAA all you want, but there is a difference. And in most of these cases, you're talking about these aren't guys who've had long minor league careers. Dylan Cruz just drafted last summer. You know, Brady House a couple years ago, and he's still very young. James Wood, maybe a little more advanced, but he's young himself. I think they want to absolutely make sure each of these guys is ready before they make that move. Hopefully it happens at some point during the season, but I'd be very surprised. And I don't think they're going into this planning for any of them to be on the opening day roster. Yeah. And from a service time standpoint, would not do the Nats any favors to begin any of those guys at the major league level at the beginning of the regular season. I guess what you wonder about is if one of these guys or more than one just is outstanding in spring training. Like, let's say Dylan Cruz is just killing it in Grapefruit League play, and everyone is saying, this guy's got it. Like, this guy is here. He's got superstar written all over him. He's raking. Are you going to not have him at the major league level to begin the regular season just because you want to see him at AAA or because of the service time issue? And listen, 
if the service time thing drives you not having him at the major league level to begin the regular season, I think there's merit to that line of thinking. I do. Like, it's not something you're supposed to talk about, but it makes total sense from a club perspective. But I just wonder, right? Like, we know what can happen. These guys are really gifted. What if, uh, especially an older guy like a Cruz, it just kills it in spring training. Is the possibility of him beginning the season at the major league level, breaking camp at the major league level, is that in play or is that off the table? I just I wonder about that from Mike Rizzo's perspective. Well, let's just remember Bryce Harper probably was big league ready coming out of spring training in 2012. He went to AAA for three weeks. They called him up. He never looked back, obviously. And yeah, there are service time considerations. Now, the one change to that, and it's interesting, is MLB is trying to incentivize teams not to do that, to try to put their guys in the big leagues right away. If you win rookie of the year now, it changes it. And, and if you were on the roster all year long, like you get extra draft picks, I think, because of that. And the players themselves can get extra rewards for all that. So there is some motivation now that wasn't there in the past. So I'm not going to say 0% chance, but I think the chance is still pretty small given the lack of minor league experience and all the practical reasons that say, hold off just for a little bit here and it will happen in due time and it will make sense when it does happen. It is going to be fascinating and it is going to be so exciting when that day comes. I mean, I guess you could say if you're the Nats from a box office standpoint, stagger those MLB debuts, right? Like spread them out a little bit. James Wood, Dylan Cruz, Brady House, and others too. I mean, it's not just those three guys, but those of course are uh, the three guys leading the charge, at least going into this coming season. Well, you tell us what you think. Like we said earlier in the program, we will be back with you later this week. A show that is being taped on Thursday will be out either late Thursday or early Friday for you wrapping up whatever the Nats do at these uh, 2023 winter meetings. But we always enjoy hearing from you. You can hit us up on X at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show as well, Podcast at gmail.com. We encourage you to check out our website as well, natschatpodcast.com at which you can buy a Nats Chat podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat podcast. Uh, For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you in just a few days on the Nats Chat podcast. Cairo gets into one to left field. Miguel Cairo has gone deep. And it's 9-5 in the sixth inning. And Cairo is 8 for his last eight in the postseason.